Acts. Good, good. Let me explain to you how this timing thing works. You know, you think, well, if I take through two or three minutes at the beginning of the time, then Pastor Wagner can just fudge two or three at the end of the time. But that means that the people who have been watching your kids for the last two hours, then you're late there. And compared to what they can do to you if you're late, anything I could do pales into insignificance, you see. They're ready to see you and give you your children back. So I will do my best to end at the uh, appointed hour. Let's pray again. Thank you, Lord, for the refreshing break, Uh, not only a snack and a cup of coffee, but conversation with brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was mentioned before, uh, such a joy for us from our individual churches to reconnect with uh, old friends from other congregations uh, and then meet new people and begin friendships that may last 20 or 30 or 40 years or or more. We, We praise you and thank you for that. So bless us now as we continue in our studies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. New families made up of new human beings. What I want to do here, before we jump into family relationships and family roles and responsibilities, is is to think about something even more fundamental, which on one level is obvious enough, but I think it's one of those things that's so obvious that maybe it doesn't get adequate, deliberate attention. Uh, And that is what Christ has done to renew our human nature, renew our humanity. Uh, God changes the family because he changes the people within that family to think about their relationships and their roles in terms of that standard and those motivational factors and that goal orientation that I mentioned in the last session. So, You know, anthropologists and sociologists, they spend time studying uh, this question, what is man? But of course, they don't even want to talk about man as something distinctive anymore, or even humanity, humankind. Um, But uh, we want to think about that a little bit this morning. Um, The Word of God explains to us that in Christ we are new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's the first memory verse I can remember memorizing. Uh, My family was not Christian. Um, I mean, they would have been nominally, but they didn't even go twice a year with any consistency. Uh, But my dad, um, for political reasons mostly, didn't care much for the public schools, so he sent me to Christian schools, and that's where I heard the gospel. I got to eat some of the crumbs that fell from the children's table. And uh, somewhere along the line, I had to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17. And, uh, you know, if you've got to start somewhere with a Bible verse, that's as good as any. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or new creation. It really hits like a blah! Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's got its puzzles, but it's that promise that in Christ... We are partaking of a new creation. 
And that then, in turn, explains how we should now live our lives. Um, We can remind ourselves that Jesus is not only the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, which He is, but He is also the true man, if you will. The second Adam, the last Adam. That means there was no one between Adam and Christ like them, and there's been no one since Christ like them. They stand in a unique relationship to God the Creator and to those human beings that they represent. John emphasizes the humanity of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the one and only Son of the Father. And in the second half of Romans 5, particularly, there Paul sets up this comparison and contrast between the two Adams, between our first father, Adam, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. What happened to the one, what was done by the one, affected the many, and then with the second one, other things were done. One act of disobedience, then the obedience of the other had impact then on all of their representatives. Uh, Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, talks about the first man, Adam, becoming a living being, and the last Adam becoming a life-giving spirit. So we confess, uh, in the words of the creeds, with the faithful church of all ages, that Jesus is, yes, very God of very God, but also very man of very man, well and truly human. As our representative substitute, Jesus' redemptive accomplishment imputed to us by grace and received by faith provides the basis, the foundation for our forgiveness, for our acceptance by God, what we call justification. This is the glorious forensic or legal side of our redemption, God's grace to us, our sins reckoned to Christ, satisfied in the cross, His righteousness then imputed to us by God's grace and received by faith. And, and, and sadly, for many, that's all we need to know. Our sins are forgiven, we're right with God, now let's get out there and do our thing. But for our purposes here, and really for good theology, there's another dimension to this redemption that we need to appreciate as fully as that forensic. This is the existential, or if you like the Puritans, the experimental aspect of our redemption. And it's very important to our experience of salvation. And in this, the covenant-keeping love and faithfulness of Jesus, that is, His consistent devotion to the Father, Um, What I talked about last night with the kids and what we'll be looking at uh, some more this evening, that loving obedience, that desire to do the Father's will, that faithfulness of the Son becomes then the true pattern for our humanness. What are we going to look like? How are we going to live in our human nature? We find that in Jesus. 
what Adam and Eve should have been, but weren't, because of their sinful rebellion, Jesus was and continues forever to be. So what is the word of the Lord to us as human beings? Um, You know, I've been citing a lot of scripture. I don't expect you to catch all the references or even to look them up. Sometimes trying to do that is just distracting, but uh, let's turn to Hebrews 2. It's a little longer passage, and I want to take a minute with it. Uh, There, what the author says about humanity in general and Jesus in particular. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You recognize Psalm 8. You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he, was sanct- he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, of course, there's a lot in this passage, and we can just tease out a couple of things for our purposes this morning. The author says that God, in his wisdom, has chosen to subject the world to come, also known as the new heavens and the new earth, that final, consummate, glorious new creation, has chosen to subject that world to come to human beings, to the seed of Abraham, um, rather than, for example, to angels. And yet, he says, that subjection is not yet evident. At the present time, we don't see it. 
Rather, humankind seems to be caught up in the affairs of this world as much a victim as a leader or governor. What we do see, he says, at the present time is Jesus, humbled for a season and then exalted, crowned with glory and honor, verse 9. And so the first human, the great human, the, the final human, if you will, has been humbled and then exalted to that position of sovereign lordship over this new creation. And now we have been introduced into that new creation through faith. He is the true human being of which Psalm 8 originally spoke. Like Adam, but more glorious than Adam. Succeeding where Adam failed. Now again, in saying that, I want to emphasize that, not taking anything away from the deity of Christ and the reality of the incarnation. I mean, he says it there, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, the eternal son, had to partake of the same things. But it's that emphasis on his genuine, authentic humanity, something that that caused some in the early church They were just horrified that the idea that God would become contaminated by direct contact with the flesh, with the physical. So this incarnate God, this Jesus Christ, is the second Adam, the last Adam. Now there's much in this passage about the sympathetic priesthood of Jesus because he's been tempted. He knows how to help us when we are tempted. And there's certainly, again, an emphasis upon the uniqueness of the work of Christ. He and He alone made propitiation for our sins. He bore the wrath and curse of God in His own body on the tree so that we might be reconciled with God. Again, that's not something that we can imitate, that we can somehow do for ourselves. We can't go into all of that unique work of Christ, but we cannot ignore it either. But the point I want us to take special note of here in this context is the identification of the Son with our human nature, becoming like us in every way, even tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. But the author wants to emphasize that in Christ we see ourselves In His humanity, we see our humanity as in a mirror, perhaps. With respect to Jesus' humanness, then, what He is now, we will one day be. Both in His destiny, we will, with Him, reign. Now we can parse that out eschatologically. Alan and I can fight for it, but anyway... Eventually, we will judge angels. We will rule with Christ because rule is delegated to human beings and Christ is that prototypical new human. But also with respect to His character. Now, Jesus didn't have a fallen human nature. When He was tempted, He never sinned. And one day... Our perfection in holiness 
will bring our human nature into conformity ethically and spiritually with his own. So in both destiny and in character, Jesus is our future. And God is moving us toward that goal, toward that telos. Indeed, this represents the family likeness between ourselves and our glorious Savior, that family likeness that's affected more and more by sanctification and one day in our bodies through glorification. We look more and more like Jesus. We sound more and more like Jesus. People say, my son Benjamin has my voice. Now, I can't quite hear it, but other people hear him talk and they say, man, you got your dad's voice. Good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, and then somebody said the other, yesterday, they said, we saw a little girl running around here that looked just like Sarah, my daughter. And of course, it was my granddaughter. And they said, oh, he must have brought his grandchildren along. There's that family resemblance. Sad for my kids if they end up looking like me. Thankfully, they look like the female side of the family more often. But Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters who look like him, who sound like him, and who will more and more act like him. So, in a sense, the word of the king, the word of the Lord to us as human beings is, since I have identified with you in your humanity, in your weakness, and as a sin-bearer, not as a sinner, but as a sin-bearer, even to the point of the death of the cross, I have identified with you. Now you must also identify with me. Imitate my humanity, ultimately in a glorified holiness. Again, that's what we were talking about last night a little bit. This, that idea of imitating Jesus knowing His grace, understanding the uniqueness of His work, reliant upon His transforming power, we can then try to walk in His steps. So you and I then are called to learn how to be human in God's definition of human nature. We need to learn how to become faithful, covenant-keeping creatures, who reflect in our lives more and more that image and likeness of God our Creator for which we were originally created. And we have to learn that just as Jesus did in the context of a hostile world where our faith and our godliness, just like His devotion to the Father and His godliness was subject to to constant opposition and growing suffering. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the author says that it was pleasing to God to make the author of our salvation complete through suffering. Or in chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus, though He was a son, learned obedience from what He suffered and was then made perfect, and as such, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus warned us through his disciples that if they persecuted him, they would persecute us. If they discount the master, certainly they will discount the servant as well. Or as Paul 
reminded Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we have the calling to become more and more like Christ, but it's always in the face of opposition. This is not a stroll in the park. This is trying to run through the whole defense of the Green Bay Packers or whatever your favorite enemy team is. There's a lot of things arrayed against us to keep us short of that goal, as was the case with our Savior. But then in Hebrews 12, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher, who for the sake of the joy set before him has finished his course, and we run with endurance the race set before us. Another metaphor for the same thing. Now we might ask, what does this living look like, this living by faith, this true spirituality? And there's lots of ways that we could describe it. We love the shorter catechism, don't we? So we could describe it in those terms. This life of faith is a life lived to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to be what we were meant to be. And in that flourishing, in that blessedness, to show forth His glory. And how do we know how to do that? Well, again, we're told that the Word of God has given us the only rule to direct us. So here we are, back to the roadmap. This shows us the way, how to do it. How does it do that? What do the Scriptures principally teach? They teach us what man is to believe concerning God, as well as the duty that God requires of us. So that's the nuts and bolts of, but what I want us to see at this point is, where are we going? What's the goal? What's the teleology? You know, we're dropped down in the middle of this universe. Are we going to get our orientation? How are we going to find our direction and then begin to pursue that direction? Jesus summed up this duty to God and to our fellow human beings in the two great love commandments. And then he exemplified them in his own conduct as a man. Remember when the Pharisees asked him, what are the great command, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Matthew 22, 36. And Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, of course, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. He exemplified that in his own life when he said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, the ransom for many, that's the unique work of Christ. The self-forgetting, self-surrendering love, that's the common life that we have with Christ as human beings. Greater love has no one than this, than that we lay down our life for our friends. And so Jesus has given us that command to love one another, even as he has loved us. And again, I'll talk to the kids, Lord willing, about that on Thursday night. It wouldn't be too much to say that learning to be human is learning how to love. 
in the most complete and robust sense of that term. And certainly there's nothing more essential to our lives within the family, our relationships and the carrying out of our roles, than to love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. It's almost a cliche. Anybody disagree with that? Love is all you need. No. Everybody agrees. But what is love? And who gives us the pattern for genuine love? You see, that's the point. It is Christ alone who has loved us and who can then teach us how to love. And it's really tragic when we look at the wreckage within the church among professing Christian families. I mean, you you get into it and you start talking and you find out somebody's love broke down. One form or another. Kids stop loving their parents. Wives stop loving their husbands. Husbands love something else or someone else more than their wives. So we can all say, all you need is love. But delivering on that, even in the church, even knowing what we know, because that temptation to say, yeah, I know that's all true, but my situation is unique. The challenges that I face are just too tough. This is why we have to come back and fix our eyes upon Jesus, who in the face of every kind of opposition did what love for him required. And again, there's that unique work, but also a work that we share with him, loving in every dimension of that word. Now, this all sounds well and good, but we have a serious problem, do we not? And it would seem to be insurmountable. We remain in the corruption of our fallen human nature, inherited from our first father, Adam. We are defiled by sin. Jesus said, a healthy tree bears good fruit. A diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear diseased fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Or as Jeremiah said, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you who are accustomed to evil, do good. There just are not the resources within us to make this kind of change. And that throws us back by faith upon the working of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that imparts resurrection life, new creation life, who plants the seed of the future in our lives in the present and begins to renew and remake us in the image and likeness of God. I alluded in the first hour to those promises in the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel principally, of a new covenant, a new era, an era in which the Messiah will figure centrally, but also a time when the Spirit of God will be poured out in a dramatic new way. And that will include and really begin with the renovation from within of our fallen human nature. A new heart and a new spirit. A heart of stone taken out, a heart of flesh 
put in. And then God's Spirit Himself dwelling within us so that, see that's the cause, here's the effect, so that you will walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That the Old Covenant couldn't produce. It needed this dramatic outpouring of the Spirit. Now, anyone who was regenerated at any time in redemptive history was regenerated by the inner work of the Spirit. But the historical emphasis falls on the newness of this new era. And again, as John points out, it was the glorification of the Messiah that set the stage then for this new, quote-unquote, giving of the Holy Spirit in all of His new covenant fullness. The Spirit's work of regeneration, renewal, sanctification, has particular reference to the marred image that is our fallen humanity. Uh, You know, I suppose, these two verses um, uh, in Ephesians and Colossians, parallel passages where Paul writes in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, put off your old man. Again, some of the versions want to say self, that really, it's man, and the idea is to conjure up the man, the human being that you are in Adam. Put off the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's our natural condition. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new man, that is, who you are in Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, this new creation humanity. Put him on, created after the likeness of God. So Paul picks up the language of Genesis 1, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And in the parallel passage in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices, which he had enumerated earlier, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put all that off with the old Adam and put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. So the work of redemption is the renewal of the work of creation. God made Adam and Eve uniquely in His image and likeness. Our sinful rebellion has brought distortion and corruption to that. And now in Christ, in union with Him by faith, we become new human beings, restored to the image, not yet perfectly, but in principle, now able to live in the way that we were originally designed to function. Paul talks about being renewed in knowledge, renewed in holiness, and in righteousness. Man restored to the godlike character and the original vocation, calling, that God gave him as prophet, priest, and king. How does this transformation take place? Well, through the new birth, that's the inception, the being born again to enter the kingdom of God. 
but then through what we call progressive sanctification. Beholding as in a mirror the the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another, even from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but there are other ways of looking at it as well. So it begins in regeneration, that's the start of the assembly line, and moves progressively through sanctification. At death, our souls are made perfect, and in the resurrection, our bodies. Never forget your body. Your bodies will be conformed to the likeness of the Son's resurrection body. And then in that new order, that consummate glory of the new heavens and the new earth, we and our complete humanity will join Christ for all eternity. And so that sets the agenda then for us as human beings who then become husbands, who then become wives, who then become parents or, or uh, uh, you know, mothers and fathers and so forth. Those family roles are made up of these new creatures. Now, again, I know some families have some Christians, and you know, there might be a woman whose husband is not converted or vice versa. So we're, we're speaking in principle here, not necessarily in all of our life experiences. But as new human beings, then, our purpose is to be personally conformed to the likeness of Jesus the Son. Again, back to that Romans 8.29 verse. That's God's good for us, toward which all things work together in His purpose. That's what we've been called to. And so it will one day come to pass. And so we pursue His kingdom and His righteousness in this way. Some of you are familiar with the the distinction that we use. Uh, Sometimes it gets thrown around without much explanation, but we can think about redemption as something that we currently experience, an already, and then that which is yet to come, both in time and then one day in eternity, a a not yet. Well, in a sense, our um, already is regeneration. We have been born again by the Spirit, and our ongoing transformation by the Spirit. And those anticipate the not yet of this glorification, this final renewal of the completeness of our human nature. And between the two, and of course those two both are seen in Christ, but between the two is the daily process of becoming more and more Christ-like. Those attributes that reflect the perfect human nature and the consistent faithful practices of our Lord become the steps, then, in which we are to walk as we follow Him. Now, we don't get it all from seeing an illustration of Jesus doing X, Y, or Z, and so we see Him doing and we imitate. Much of this comes in terms of propositions, principles, uh, and other illustrations, but the, the way to conceptualize it is that Jesus is teaching us to observe all that he has commanded us so that we will become, in our human nature, more and more like him. It requires disciplined training. This is something that you can't learn simply from a book. 
Um, this whole idea of, of training is something that, that we, uh, we haven't successfully implemented in the life of the church, I don't think. When I, you know, my son is a Marine, uh, I serve a congregation that has had a lot of military people in and out through the years, and so, you know, it, it, it's not very long before somebody's going through boot camp or somebody's going through basic training. They don't just give you a uniform and a, and a weapon and say, all right, go for it. There's training that has to basically break you down and teach you new habits of how to be this thing that you're going to be when you come out the other end, which is a sailor or a marine or, or whatever. We don't really have anything that corresponds to that in the life of the church. Somebody comes to faith, they hear a sermon, they give their life to Jesus, they start living the Christian life, and the issue of discipline training often doesn't even come up. Again, some of us, not me, maybe not you, but some get really nervous about this idea of training someone to do because it sounds like human effort, Human effort sounds like works righteousness. We better just stay far, far, far away from that. You know, I love Henry Crovendown. He says it's 100% you and 100% God. Bad math, good spirituality. You need to put your all into it because God puts his all into it to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. But discipline training... Paul writes to Timothy, have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Any of you guys play guitar? A few. Any of you learn how to play guitar out of a book? You did? Did you ever own a guitar? Did you ever pick it up, strum it? Huh? Yeah, you used a book, but you didn't learn how to play the guitar from the book. You can't learn how to play a guitar without holding a guitar, fingering a guitar, strumming and picking a guitar. And you can't learn godliness out of a book, even though we've got the best book imaginable. Now, I say that for the point of emphasis. Obviously, we learn it from a book, but it takes disciplined practice and effort. And we need to think more as we think about family life and corporate life. What do we do to train one another? We think about training children, but many of us have come into the church as children. We're 35 years old or 47 years old, but we're children in Christ. Who's training us? Who's teaching us? Who's holding us accountable for those new habits of mind and heart and life that are necessary? You know what Paul said about his own self-discipline. He said that running this race, he didn't want to come in second place. There is no second place. And so he ran and he practiced self-control in all things, just like a dedicated athlete does. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Indeed, this is why the Scripture is given, that we might be trained in righteousness so that we're complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So that's God's call 
the promise, the hope of being a new creature in Christ that then sets the agenda for our living in general and particularly in our relationships and roles within the family. Finally, in community, we are called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We're not called to Christ in isolation. The call of faith is also a call into community, into a new family. A family that isn't identified by male, female, rich, poor, bond, free, Jew, Gentile, but by one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A family united in Christ by faith. And that family is the beginning of a new human race. Out of the race fallen in Adam, God is now beginning to gather and assemble and organize his new humanity, and that is the church. The church is the body of Christ, as we know, and and Paul draws out many of the implications. But it's that challenge in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, that I want us to, to leave with. As we are together in Christ, how can we spur one another on? That's the way the NIV translates it. I like that. You know, we know how to goad one another. Again, back to my poor grandsons. They're already poking each other with all these wonderful sticks. You know, we don't, we don't have sticks like this in Chula Vista. You go to the mountains, you get some real sticks. And sticks are for poking, right? So we all know how to poke one another, hurt each other's feelings, make each other angry, humiliate one another. That comes natural enough. But how do we poke each other on toward love and good works? That's the calling of our Christian community. And again, we do that through encouragement and intercessory prayer. But we also do it through accountability and mutual discipline as we move toward that goal. So much of the one-anothering, as it's been called, that has to go on in the body of Christ is designed for that ultimate end. Time's up. Even though I lost three minutes at the beginning, I'm right on the money again. Right thinking is essential for right living. And right living reinforces and strengthens right thinking. Again, we're pragmatic people. We just want to know what we should do and we'll get on with it. That's why we don't like long sermons, because they seem so impractical. I remember years ago, this was like 1976, see now I'm going past time, so you blame me when you go out. Um, I spoke to a, in those days they had a high school summer camp, and they invited me down from Sonora, and I decided I was going to preach on the first 12 chapters of Romans. That's what a young pastor with no brain decides he's going to do. And in those days, there was a vibrant youth group at the Goleta Church, college-age kids. They were wonderful kids. And they were running this high school camp. And, you know, they were polite to me, but they kept saying, you know, Pastor, there's so much theology here, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. You know, couldn't you be more practical? 
And I kept saying, wait, wait, we'll get to the practice. But if we don't get the thinking down, the practice will just evaporate. Now, I said that all those many years ago. That was the right answer. I had no idea how much truth I was speaking as I do today. If we don't take the time to think in biblical terms, we simply won't be able, even if we know what the right thing is, to do it with any steadfastness, with any consistency for the sake of our families. Practice and faith or thinking go together. Like love and marriage, love and marriage. Go together like a, okay. See, I found out who the other geezers were with that song. <laughs> right thinking, right practice. They come together in our lives in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the rich teaching of your word. And for the, for the grand themes of creation and fall and redemption new creation, and, and how that helps us see the horizon all around us, understand the past as we look back toward the Garden of Eden, and the future as we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells because our risen King is there. And Lord, as we try to get our sense of direction, our orientation, and then follow the direction of your word with that kind of consistency and and self-discipline, Lord, we pray that you will bring our practices, which are often correct and sadly often inconsistent with little sticking power, that they might grow in strength and in purpose and ultimately in fruitfulness to the glory of that second Adam who is reproducing himself in us, in this new human race, this new family of brothers and sisters that look like Jesus and speak like Jesus and feel like Jesus and purpose like Jesus. For Christ is that glorious one raised to your right hand until that day when you subject all things, finally, practically, under his feet. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray it for his sake. Amen.